following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, please turn with me to Ruth. Uh, We're still in chapter 1. We're going to finish the back half of the chapter today, verses 14 through 22. And uh, we get a lot of work to do, so I'm just going to jump right in. Today we're going to read one of the most profound statements in all of the Scripture. And it's going to come from the mouth of a woman who many, and many especially in the time of Jesus, and that would be roughly a thousand years later than what we're reading now, the, the history that we're reading now, Jesus shows up a thousand years later, but many in his time would have referred to her as a Gentile dog. And what this does, I think it should at least in part, it says so much about who God delights in using for his purposes and who is welcome to come to him. And and all of that being regardless of what the self-righteous and religious crowd might have to say about it. Amen? I hope that's good news for you, because I'd be a Gentile dog without Jesus. That would be a fitting description of me. Um, now, th- that idea that God shows his hand a little bit here in the book of Ruth, a lot of it, uh, I can't get too much into that today, though, because as I've told you, my greatest struggle in preaching this book is not preaching the whole thing every week, okay? Because that's really hard for me because this is, it's one of my favorites and there's so much gold here. So um, the the bottom line is before we read these verses, I I want you to know this. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but the loyalty, the loyalty of Ruth is legendary. And today we get to take a long look at it together. I'm going to try to stay in that lane, okay? So you guys help me. Amen. We're going to read chapter 1, verses 14 through 22 together, okay? If you don't have a Bible with you, they'll be on the screens. If you don't own a Bible, let us know. We'd be thrilled to give you one, okay? Verse 14, here we go. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. Now, just to make sure we're all caught up, they had gone to Moab, Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion. The father and the sons are now dead, okay? And Naomi has made the choice she's going to go back to Bethlehem. That's what the tears are about, okay? This is a difficult time with difficult decisions being made. So they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess. 
her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Praise God for his word. Amen. So, like I said, this, this set of verses, I would say that the, the key here, the, the place that for sure most people would focus on in, in touching this would be this statement of extreme loyalty and faithfulness from Ruth. But I want us to also turn our attention somewhat to Naomi's role here. I think sometimes that gets underplayed or underlooked at. The, the, the question I want us to look at and think about is, how, how did this happen? How is this possible? It's, it's, very, it's very cool, it's very beautiful that Ruth said these words. Um, I, I don't know if any of you have ever been to a wedding or maybe in your own vows. Sometimes people will use these words in their vows. And if, and if I'm being honest, the because of the context of this and, and how it really lays within the scriptures, that idea of using it as wedding vows makes me have a little bit of like a theological neat-nick tick, but it's okay. Like, I'm not, <laughs> if, if, you, if that was in your vows, I understand. These are beautiful words, aren't they? Man, this is precious, what Ruth expresses to her mother-in-law here. But, but part of what I want us to look at is why. What, why did she say this? What was motivating this. How do we have this account happening? Why didn't Ruth just go back to Moab, which seems to be the best practical decision? Why is this the account we get to read? Why is this what happened? And I'm going to try to lay out three things for you that I see. There's probably more, uh, but three things that I want us to look at. The first is, what's the premise? How did this happen? Why was this Ruth's response. What was going on in the background here that allowed for this to be the, the course of action, action that she took? And then, obviously, as we move through the book, we'll see God was working in all of it, of course, and his sovereignty is the ultimate answer to the question, but there's other elements at play, okay? So the first thing I want us to see here is that Ruth and Naomi, they truly cared for one another. They truly cared for one another. This is the first thing answer I'm giving you to the question, how did this happen? How do we have this account? And probably for most of you, Ruth's love for Naomi is pretty easy to see here, right? As you, as you read this account, would you agree with that? Ruth loving Naomi is pretty simple to see. It's, it's kind of out front and, and obvious in, in the way she clings to her, in the words that she speaks to her, in her loyalty, dedication to her, right? Her, her love shines through. It's, it's pretty obvious. But but Naomi's love for Ruth is not so obvious. And as, as a matter of fact, there are some commentators who say Naomi was so bitter at God over all the loss that she had endured that, that she really wanted Orpah and Ruth, her daughters-in-law, to go back to worshiping Chemosh and all of Moab's other detestable idols. That when she says this to Ruth, your, your sister's gone back to her people and her gods. That really what Naomi wants there is, is for Ruth to do the same. And I can understand how someone may come to that conclusion, but I want to propose for us today, I want to submit that a careful reading shows Naomi was wise and was trying to make sure that her daughter-in-laws were truly counting the cost of returning with her to Israel. Okay, Here's what we know. This was going to be extremely difficult because of even just the practical realities of the three of them going back into Israel and being widows. 
This was not going to be easy. But I would say more, even more importantly than that, that kind of big practical piece, Naomi understood there would be no room. There'd be no room for divided allegiance when it came to who they would worship as they returned back to the land of Israel. And you might say, well, where, where'd you get all that? Well, look, look with me again at verse 15. This is, this is Naomi to Ruth. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. To her people and her gods. This is clearly the idea, the issue of who we're going to worship is clearly in view. And, and let's look at verse 18. So Naomi understands this. Does Ruth? <clears throat> Sorry, not verse 18. Uh, I'm in verse 16. Your God will be my God. Ruth understands this is part of the issue, probably the most significant issue. And, and, in, and so when it comes down to what was Naomi really doing here, I think verse 18 helps. It says, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. I think in some ways this was, this was a loving act on Naomi's part. For her to really put out in the open the reality of the situation. Do you understand what this is going to mean? This means leaving your people. This means leaving your gods. On top of the fact that we're heading back into Israel as widows. And all the difficulty that that's going to create. And, and I know that Naomi did not have the benefit of Christ's example to learn from. Do you understand why I'm saying that? Because of where we're at in history right here. We're a thousand years before Christ is born, ish, okay? Naomi did not have the benefit of Christ's example to learn from. Even though that's true, I think she somehow understood that this, this kind of challenging, almost, almost testing of both Ruth and Orpah, that it was the most loving way to address them. She didn't have the benefit of looking at the, the life and, and teachings of Christ. However, we do. And, and, and part of why I'm saying that I, I don't see Naomi here as uh, just lashing out out of her bitterness, but being calculated and intentional, is because we see Jesus doing the same thing very often. Okay? Let me read to you a, a passage from Luke chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him. You know, he probably fed some people and healed some people, so people were getting excited. Crowds were growing. So what does Jesus do? Does he slick back his hair, capitalize on that, and try to really get, see if he can get the engines going, get the, get the pump-up parade happening? He turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. <laughs> I like Jesus. The crowds are getting big, boys. <laughs> Let's thin it out, right? Amen. <laughs> was not struggling with insecurity, clearly. Who, he didn't, he's not done. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who are watching it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this person began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to face the one coming against him with 20,000? Otherwise, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and requests terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. 
<laughs> Jesus was real clear about the cost. Jesus put it up front that this is, I'm not inviting you to a perpetual picnic here. That if you want to follow me, it's going to cost you dearly. And I see Ruth doing the same thing. Jesus continues, and, and it may seem a little off kilter, but I'm, I'm going to clean it up for us. He continues right after what I just read you. Therefore, salt is good, but, even, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or the manure pile, so it's thrown out. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear. Like I said, that last bit about salt, clearly Jesus is he's, he's telling everybody, look, if you want to be my disciple, it's, it's coming with a cost. And, and, and you're not going to be able to truly do it just thinking that what you're doing here is, is coming around to, to kind of pull off some of the benefits of, of being around me. This, this thing is going to, it's going to cost you, okay? To the point that he says, pick up your cross and follow me. The, the totality of what all that meant probably wasn't clear to the folks hearing it then, but it becomes crystal clear later. But that last bit about salt might seem out of place, but I don't, I don't think it is. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and that brings me back to the situation with Naomi and Ruth and us trying to answer this question. Why was, why was Ruth motivated to give this kind of faithful, loyal declaration of her commitment to Naomi? What, where did that come from? What was it about Naomi's life that caused Ruth to want to be one of her people, and to worship her God. What was it? And I think at least part of the answer is clear from the text. A follower of God who has truly counted the cost and trusts him through whatever struggles and suffering comes in this life. A, a follower of God like that is a powerful witness of his worthiness to be worshipped. And we see that at least we don't know so much what happened the rest of time, the time in Moab. We know that Ruth and Orpah got married to Malon and Kilion. We don't have a bunch of background about their family life and, and how all of that worked together. But what we can see is that when things got really, really hard, and Naomi, even her understanding of it at that point was that God's hand was against her. That instead of turning her face away from God to run further from him, she turned her face towards him. And something about Naomi resonated to the degree that Ruth says, Don't ask, quit asking me to let go of you. Where you go, I'm going. Where you live, I'm living. Your people are going to be my people, and your God's going to be my God. And where you die, I'm going to die, and I want to be buried there. What was it? I think it was at least that much. And on this idea of, of loving people well by challenging them to count the cost, I, I just want to say, I, most important, I, I see Jesus doing it. So that, that tells me that that's, that's a right and loving thing to do. Uh, but I can also understand it personally because, honestly, I try to do the same thing uh, when I'm walking people through a premarital process. Some of you have been through a premarital process with me, and you know part of kind of how that feels is if, if I can talk you out of it, I'm, I might try to. 
And some of you are like, whoa, I don't know, that sounds mean, but that's what I'm trying to do. I'm expecting an assault on many of your perspective today about what is kind and loving. To challenge someone to really count the cost, to challenge someone to really stare wide-eyed, soberly at what it is they're proposing to do is a very loving thing. Jesus did it, Naomi did it, so I'm going to do it too. So there's that, okay? One more amen, I wouldn't have done that snap, but you guys proved that you needed it. So there you go. <laughs> amen. And, and why is that important in, in marriage? And, and you might be like, whoa, dude, is this a sermon on marriage? No, ultimately it's a sermon about covenant loyalty and faithfulness, and that's, what, that's where we're headed. So there, I popped the top off for you, let you see behind the curtain, but... Why, why am I in that? Well, because here's, here's how that plays out when it comes to marriage. Too many people have bought into the idea that the purpose of covenant marriage is for your spouse to complete you and to fill your love tank forever. Again, silence. Do you need another snap? That's true. Now listen to me. I, I have all the compassion in the world for that because that is a loud, resounding message, Okay. That what you're out there looking for is your other half. That you're, you're not a complete person, just you and Jesus. You've got another half out there you need in order to make a whole. And I understand, I was a young man at one time. I was chasing Natalie trying to get her to marry me, you know, from age 16 to 18. So you best trust and believe in the early 2000s, we had a little half a heart necklace. And I can't remember what it said, probably true love or something dumb like that. And she had one side and I had the other. But also, you know, no one had really taught me the Bible yet, so <laughs> I was... I was still working on this. Um, but but that, that misunderstanding that what the purpose of covenant marriage is is to, is to go find somebody that's going to complete you and they're, they're going to meet all your needs and they're going to fill your love tank forever. Um, that's, that's not the reality. The reality is this, that trusting God and letting his love fill your heart, it frees you from demanding that all your emotional needs be met by broken people who were never meant to be your ultimate source of fulfillment. And that's some really good freedom. You ought to bite off a piece of that chew on it a minute because it's good for us, okay? And, and, and look, I'm, I'm using marriage as an example. It's one of the strongest covenant examples we have in, in this life. But this idea that I'm talking about, it extends beyond covenant marriage, Okay? Are you sure? Well, the covenant language Ruth uses here with Naomi shows us that this type of loyalty and commitment, this perspective of not, not I'm coming into this relationship uh, expecting for you to do a bunch for me, expecting for you to fill me up, but that what Christ has shown us, what the scriptures have shown us is that uh, we're meant to live with an orientation towards me coming to poor. And the great hope is that if you've got two believers, whether it be in a marriage, in a friendship, in family relationships, uh, that if, if both people are thinking that way, then everyone gets poured into. But it's far more beautiful than this kind of, um, let me see what I can come and get from you, as opposed to, let me see what I can come and give to you, okay? Now, I know some of you are, are nervous about the way I'm talking, and I'll address that in a minute, Okay. This is meant to extend into other relationships as well. And that brings us to the second thing I want us to see. We're answering the question, how did this happen? How did this, why is this Ruth's response to Naomi? Why is this the way the story goes? The first thing I was submitting to you is that these two, 
Ruth and Naomi, they truly cared for one another. And I think that's evident. And hopefully now you can see Naomi's care a little more clearly that we've talked about it. The second thing I want to give you is these two understood covenant commitment. These two understood covenant commitment. What is that? Is it, how would you define that? Well, I would define it with a contrast. I think it's probably the easiest way. Worldly commitment says, I'm with you and I'm for you until it costs me too much. Worldly commitment says, I'm with you and I'm for you up and until it costs me too much. Covenant commitment says, I'm with you and I'm for you and I know it's going to cost me dearly. I'm with you and I'm for you and I know it's going to cost me dearly. Naomi had been very clear with Ruth how this was going to look, how difficult this was going to be. Ruth's declaration wasn't out of ignorance. It wasn't naivety. It was a full, open-eyed look at the reality of the situation. And still, this is what she had to say. That's covenant commitment. And I think it's also beautiful that Naomi didn't allow her to make this statement in, out of naivety or with eyes half open, or starry-eyed, or however you want to describe it. Not able to see the reality of what we were dealing with here. And you, you could be sitting here thinking, okay, well, I see your contrast there. Well, where did you come up with that? This contrast between worldly and covenant commitment, where do you get that definition? If you're asking that or thinking that, then you're engaging with what's going on, and I'm, I'm glad. So if that's you, or even if you weren't, now you are, because I put the thought in your head. So let me ask you a question then in response to that question. If we want to understand covenant commitment, if we want to understand it, where would you propose that we look for an example? And knowing my church family here whom I love, I knew nobody was going to stand up and raise their hand and shout out the answer. That's okay. But I'm hoping at least some of you, your mind went straight to Jesus. Okay? Hopefully. That means... I'm doing at least a halfway decent way or job teaching how to think through the scriptures, right? So the question is, if we want to understand covenant commitment, let's ask ourselves what happened to Jesus. What happened when Jesus came and gave everything for the sake of others? When Jesus, his very incarnation, the very fact that he was born of a virgin, the very fact that he walked upon the earth, all of that was sacrificial. All of that was bent towards serving those of us whom he loves, right? And, and what happened to him? What did he get for that? Well, in, in the short term, he got nailed to a cross. And we know that he knew that was coming. All that Jesus did was not done out of naivety. All that Jesus did was not done out of some half-open look at the situation. Jesus declared clearly throughout his life and ministry, the day is coming when I'm going to be betrayed. The day is coming when they're going to nail me to a cross. This idea of covenant commitment, Jesus is by far, I would say, the clearest example, but we also, we see a very, I would say, a loud whisper of it in, in Genesis 15. There's this account where God is, is making a covenant with Abraham. He's actually not Abraham yet. At this point, he's Abram. And uh, what happens is God tells Abram, says to get these certain animals and to cut them in half and lay the pieces out, almost so that you have 
it'd almost be like this aisle right here with these severed animal pieces on each side. And the, the idea behind this, this style of covenant cutting was that in most cases what would happen is in the relationship between the two making the covenant, you would have a greater and a lesser. Think of uh, a king and a servant, okay? And typically how it would work is the servant would walk through those animal pieces as they made the pledge to this more powerful person, okay? They were making a covenant between each other, whatever it is, whatever the agreement is. And what happens interestingly is Abram does lay out those pieces, but then we have what's called a theophany. There's an appearance of God, but he doesn't, he shows up in kind of a strange way. The Bible says that there was a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. And this was, this was the presence of God showing up on the scene at this, the making of this covenant. And I made sure to tell you that this is in Genesis 15 because if you go to Google this later and you put in uh, smoking fire pot and flaming torch, you won't find Genesis 15. Um, a bunch of other things come up, okay? So uh, Genesis 15, if you want to go look at this later <laughs> that I'm paraphrasing, all right? Uh, <laughs> amen. So what happens is God shows up as this smoking fire pot and this flaming torch and he actually, he puts Abram to sleep. And instead of Abram walking through the pieces, which is what would have been traditionally done, God himself passes through the pieces. And part of what we see there already is covenant commitment, because what God is essentially saying there is, Abram, no matter how strong your intention is to keep a covenant with me perfectly, you're not going to be able to do it. You're an imperfect human, so I'm going to take you out of the way, and I'm going to walk through. And the whole message, what are the cut-up animals for, right? You're like, why? Here's what it was. It was a very vivid picture of what was being said in this covenant cutting. That The idea was, if I don't keep this covenant that I'm making, let what happened to those animals happen to me. And here's what's really beautiful, is ultimately in Christ, what happened to those animals did happen to God so that we could be saved. Because we didn't keep the covenant. We can't keep the covenant. Jesus had to keep it for us. Jesus had to do all the work. And the only way God was going to have us eternally as his children was to set this thing up so that we could come to him by faith and trust in his work, not in ours. But that's covenant commitment, isn't it? That's what I'm saying to you. God is saying, I know it's going to cost me this price in order to have you. I know it's going to cost me this, this price in order to make this covenant with you. Let's do it. And what I'm saying is, and some of you are going to have a hard time with this, and I understand that, and I have compassion on you for it, because for several reasons. There, there's, concerns, there's concerns that rise up in thinking this way. There's practicalities at play. But also, you, <clears throat> this, is not the message, this is not the message you hear about how relationships are supposed to work. It's a lot of 50-50, or people even say 100-100. Or what, There's always this idea of, 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 of meeting in the middle and bringing, bringing an equal amount of, of goodness to the thing. And that's just not the model we see between God and us. And it's not the model of covenant commitment. Covenant commitment comes saying, I realize this is going to cost me a lot, and I realize you probably won't be able to keep up your end of the bargain, but because God has been that way with me, I will be that way with you. 
covenant is deep, man, <laughs> okay? It, it's going to run across the grain of the way we tend to think about things. So I realize many of you are, there's a collision happening right now, okay? And that's fine. Uh, if the word of God never causes a collision, then it's probably not being preached correctly, right? Amen. The word of God in the book of Hebrews is, is it's talked about like a blade that does surgery, <laughs> okay? Uh, there's a reason they put you to sleep when they cut you for surgery. It's not always pleasant, okay? Amen. Are you saying you're a doctor? No, I'm just, I'm just a silly preacher, but that's the analogy the Bible uses. So one of those practical concerns that comes up when we talk about covenant commitment, okay, and, and I get this because it's real. Some of you might be thinking, well, what, okay, what if I buy that? And what if I try to approach relationships like that from marriage to friends to family to my people, the, the church? But what if I get burned? What if I come like that? What if I come in that way, not expecting anything, looking to give? But what if, what if, what if I get burned? What if they don't reciprocate? What, how, do I, how do I hedge myself against that? And, and my answer to you, friend, on, on the question of well, what if I get burned is I promise you if, if you try to orient yourself this way in relationships, uh, you will get burned. Grief is the price we pay for real love among imperfect humans. But you won't be alone because when you get burned, you will be sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And that's not a phrase that makes it on bumper stickers too much or on fridge magnets. Um, but man, it's in the Bible. Let me read you a piece of First Peter 4 here. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, do what then? To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, what do we do? Keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests Upon you, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right." If you orient yourself towards being a covenant person, someone that understands covenant commitment and is willing to make yourself vulnerable in that way, yes, I guarantee you, you will get burned, but also what will happen is God will help you, will help you uh, when that happens. He will be with you when that happens, but he, will also, he won't just help you, he will use you because this is the kind of love that we've been called to as Christ followers. And it's, it's so antithetical to the way that humans tend to conduct themselves, it's part of how we shine the glorious light of Christ into the world. So if, and that's the thing, right? It's like, well, all right, I, I can maybe start to see that how that's cool, but what, should I go first or do I wait till someone else goes first? Someone's got to go first in terms of this kind of covenant commitment orientation in the way we approach relationships. I would just say to you, friend, someone did go first. His name is Jesus. Okay, so that's out of the way. Now we're free to just go for it. 
knowing that it's risky, knowing that it's going to cause hurt and pain, but also knowing we won't be alone in that. Christ went first. We're sharing in his sufferings, and there's glory in that. If our minds are right, we can even rejoice in it. And here's the thing. This leads us to our our third point. Naomi and Ruth understood that this covenant commitment wasn't just about the two of them. They both knew that this had to do with who would be their people. Naomi mentioned it. I already went back and read it to you again. Ruth mentioned it. It comes up. Your sister went back to her people. Your people are going to be my people. Okay, so this is in view for them. I'm not stretching for this. This is, where, this is where the text is leading us in answering the question, how, how do we have this, this legendary expression of loyalty from Ruth to Naomi at this juncture of the story? What was at work? I believe they truly cared for each other. I believe these two really, even without the example of Christ, they understood covenant commitment. To the degree that they could, it seems like they did. The third thing it seems they understood was the idea of covenant community. Because they both knew the people here, it's a factor. And and as we go into this third point, I just want to maybe be transparent. I have a little bit of an axe to grind uh, as as we talk about it. You guys want to hear about my axe to grind? Okay, two people do, that's enough. Amen. Um, If I can, I'm just just being honest here. I, I honestly, I've had it up to about here with all of the psychobabble, quasi-Christian mumbo-jumbo about putting yourself first before you can care for the needs of others. I'm seeing it all the time. And I realize, I knew when I said that, I'd have a pin drop moment in here because there's a bunch of memes flying around the internet that seems to perpetuate this idea. But here's what I want to say. That idea is the antithesis of following Jesus Because Jesus poured himself completely out to the point of enduring an excruciating and horrifying death on a cross for your benefit. And I already read it to you earlier from Luke. If you want to be my disciple, you are going to have to pick up your cross. What do you think that means? Do you think that means make a bulk of my focus on self-care and managing my own emotional welfare? I know that's a hard statement. Hard words make soft people, man. Soft words make hard people. And we're not supposed to be hard, stiff-necked people. We should be soft and humble before God. And I'm just preaching the word to you. This is just what's here. These two are real focused on covenant community and what that means. But we're going to have to talk about that because you can't actively participate in covenant community. You can't understand covenant commitment if, if you're going with the world's ideology on how we frame this stuff in our thinking. Okay, it just doesn't work. And you might be saying, well, okay, you got to share your ax to grind, hope you feel better, but Pastor Vince, I think you forgot that Jesus said to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So, so we have to love ourselves first. Did you forget about that, Pastor Vince? Nope, no, no, I didn't. Didn't forget about that. Dear friend, I'm asking you to hear me on this. This is real important. There's a bunch of people that talk like that's what that verse is. is that, that is the point of what that verse is saying. A call, a call to love your neighbors somehow become, turns around and becomes focused on, on loving yourself. Okay. 
The point of mentioning loving yourself in that verse, in those verses, in every place where it's accounted that Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Why is as yourself in there? The point of mentioning loving yourself is not to encourage you towards more of it. It's an assumption that you already do. Okay? It doesn't say love your neighbor after you love yourself. It says love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay? And you might be thinking, well, you forgot something else. What about people with poor self-esteem or people that would say they hate themselves? Don't they need to love themselves first before they can love others? Here's what we need to think about, friends. What you love gets your focus and attention. Is that a fair statement? Let's start with that because I'm going to build off that. What you love gets your focus and attention. And here's the thing. You can be overly self, or you can be self-focused in an overly positive way or in an overly negative way, but it is still self-focus. Let me say it another way. You can stare in a mirror all day and say, you're amazing. Or you can stare in a mirror all day and say, you're terrible. But you're still staring in a mirror all day. See, pride is real sneaky like that. <laughs> the issue is still self-focus. And here's, we, we have to have a good, proper biblical definition of humility. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Right? And so that can, that can be confusing. Some people think the only people with pride issues are the ones that walk out, walk around with their chest puffed up, talking about all their accomplishments, talking about how great they are. That's not the only way pride manifests itself. Sometimes it's people that are perpetually Eeyore-ish about their own understanding of themselves, constantly focused on their failures, constantly focused on their issues. That's still self-focus. That's still pride. I realize that's hard to swallow, but just chew on it a minute and see what happens, okay? It's biblical. Here's, here's what we'll see. Here's the way out of that. If you can pull yourself away from the mirror and fix your eyes on Jesus, you'll see somebody who was wholly committed to loving and serving others. Now, I want to say this to make sure there's some balance here. The humanity of Jesus is really helpful as we think about this because we do see that Jesus... The God-man, that even he would take time to rest. And he understood that there's a healthy balance that must be maintained between pouring out and being poured into. I'm not, I'm not coming against any of that. That's real. However, what I do want us to be able to say with confidence and, and, and feel safe about is that the overall direction and momentum, the trajectory of Jesus' life was focused on serving others. Right? Right? He said it plainly. I mean, if, if you would try to argue this, it's almost laughable. He came with this bomb drop of a statement. I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. Which is mind-blowing because this is, this is the word become flesh. This is the king of all things, right? Being born of a virgin, saying when the time is right, I'm, I'm the one that deserves to be served by everybody because of who I am, but that's not what I came for. I came to I came on a different path, and I'm asking you to follow me on that path as well. So no matter how important you think you are, and that may keep you from serving others, or no matter how broken you think you are, and that would keep you from serving others, Jesus erases all of the wiggle room in the middle. 
Because he came to serve. What else can we do? If we want to follow him, if we want to be his disciple. I'm going to put this offer out there. I will personally pay for any member of Love City Church to get a tattoo anywhere on him that says, it's not about me. I will personally pay for it. Now, I realize in this crowd, I may have just set myself up for some financial hardship. So, any of my friends that have connections in the tattoo industry, if you could get me like coupons or um, Groupons, whatever, I mean, I don't know how it works, but um, that would be awesome because I'm probably going to have to pony up on that offer. But I'm serious, man. I mean, the best case scenario would be to get that tattoo backwards on your forehead. So when you look in the mirror, you see it. It's not about me. That's the safest place to be. And I understand. Look, the, the, Bible is, the Bible is not monolithic in the way it represents the truth about God and how we should respond to that. There's plenty in here that affirms us, and we're even going to get to that by the end of this. There's things in here that, that build us up and, and cause us to try to, try to see um, the value we have because God values us and, and all of that. Yes, amen. But all of that is still supposed to lead us to this same place of being able to live as people of covenant commitment within covenant community, people that live secure enough in who we are in Christ that we can pour out, that we can be servants, and that we can not be worried about hedging our bet and, and, and hoping that we somehow come out on top on the scales or that, that we get an equal share at everything, an equal shake at life, or that we get treated fairly by all the humans around us. You're, no, you're not gonna. And neither did Jesus. And you might be asking, like, well, okay, well, I hear what you're saying. Why would anybody sign up for this? Why would anybody want to subject themselves to the expectations of covenant commitment or covenant community? And I'm, I'm going to answer that. First of all, because it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And when you have a group of people living this way, then others are focused on your well-being as you're focused on theirs. And so it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not as, it sounds very nose to the grindstone, and I'm only ever going to be pouring out. But friends, the hope is when you're a part of covenant community, if everyone else is living that way, then you're also being poured into. And, and, it's, and it's beautiful instead of gross. And, and I would also, why would someone sign up to this? I would also just submit to you that it, this is the way humans were designed to live by God and to flourish together. I'm pretty sure we've got ample examples of, of the every man and every woman for themselves model. And, and it's ugly. And it leads to misery for everybody. Because if, if, you're, if you're coming to every relationship, all interactions, look, looking to see what you can get from them, and the other person is doing the same thing, what does that leave in the middle? It leaves this, this gross room for manipulation and, and false motives, and it's just gross. But when we come and and, and, and it's like Romans talks about, I'm, I'm looking to outdo you in showing honor. If you're going to try to serve me at this level, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting to get below. I want to be lower than you. I want to, if we're going to fight, it's going to be about who gets to serve who. How beautiful is that? It doesn't, leave, it doesn't leave room for mixed motives and all that nasty stuff in the middle, manipulation and let me see what I can get from you. It's what God, it's, it's the beautiful design God has has granted us. We just have to buy into it. <laughs> we have to see the beauty of it. And then we have to, 
throw ourselves at the mercy of, of the Holy Spirit to have the power to do it because none of us is just going to decide intellectually right now, oh, I, I see your point. That's really good. I'm going to do that with my self-discipline. This is, this is a Holy Spirit thing. This is a Spirit-empowered thing. This is a God thing. We're going to need His strength to do it, His anointing to do it. This idea puts us in the same place all of the scriptures are meant to put us. On our knees before God saying, I'm going to need your help for that. I can't do that. Amen. And, and so this, and this whole idea, I'm still answering the question, why would anybody sign up for this? Because this, as we've laid this out, it also brings us back to that salt language from Jesus earlier. Okay? Because when you begin to understand the beauty of the church living as covenant community, it, it makes a lot more sense than when Jesus makes this really big statement in John 13. He says that the world will know we are his disciples by our love for one another. Okay, so if he's, this is going to be like the distinguishing mark of, of followers of Jesus. If that's true, he can't, when he says our love for one another, he can't just mean some kind of squishy, sentimental, like inward only kind of affection. It's got to be a love that moves beyond feeling to doing. Like his, right? Like God's love. Like, like Orpah cried. Orpah kissed Naomi. But when it came down to doing time, Orpah went home. Ruth loved Naomi and clung to her. There's a difference between feeling and doing. The God kind of love is a doing kind of love. For God, we sang it earlier. I didn't know we were going to sing that. For God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave. It isn't for God so loved the world, he said it. Though he did say it. <laughs> he also backed it up. For God so loved the world, he gave. If we're going to be people of love, we're going to be people of God. If we're going to be covenant people, we're going to be people that give. We're going to look to give. We're going to realize, we're going to resign ourselves to the reality that God has made me to function best as a vulnerable giver. And that sometimes that's going to mean I get burned. But even when that happens, I can rejoice because I'm not the first one. Christ went before me. And I've burned him when he's been that vulnerable with me. Don't forget that. Because when, if any of you buy this, and, and some of you already have, I, I'm, I love this church so much. I, there are many of you that get this, and I see it play out in your lives all the time in the way you love and serve each other. And it, it, it blesses me. But if you're somebody right now that's maybe grappling with this for the first time, or you're re-grappling with it, don't forget this fact when you're struggling with the reality that somebody has not met you in the middle or somebody you feel like has burned you as you've really done your best to have this kind of covenant orientation of, of service and giving. Please don't forget that you have burned God. <laughs> you have burned Christ in that way because he laid himself down for you. He gave all for you. And there's been many times we have, through our choices and and through our foolishness and our sin, we have, we have not met him in like kind. Hallelujah to the lamb. He's patient and long-suffering. He's gracious and kind. May I have more and more of that the longer I walk with him. Now, verses 19 uh, through 22, it, it may seem like 
especially now that we've hit this very famous set of verses in Ruth's statement, it might seem like the rest is just kind of some details to set up the rest of the story, but there's, there's really there's something worth pulling out here. I have advocated today for a, a reading of this passage that sees Naomi as wise, intentional, and loving towards her daughters-in-law, okay? Ruth's covenant pledge and, and desire to become a part of Naomi's people and to worship Naomi's God that is the primary context clue that leads me to that conclusion. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? What I'm saying is if, if, if Naomi was really as bad off as many commentators make it seem, I, it, I, I don't expect this kind of pledge of covenant loyalty from Ruth that I think she would have had to run. But there's something about, especially when it comes to Ruth saying, I want to be a part of your people and I want to worship your God. She saw something there. Yes? Okay, so that's what leads me to that interpretation. And <clears throat> now, seeing Naomi as, as wise and godly here, as a wise and godly woman, I think it also affects the way we understand this last part of chapter one. So we already had a window last week into how Naomi felt. Uh, the last verse we read last week was that she said, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Okay, that's her understanding of the situation at this point. We, we talked about how even though this was how she understood the situation, she was still now on the way returning to the land and the people of God. And that says a lot about her as well, in my view. Uh, some have said, it, uh, I think up in verse 6, it says that word had reached them in Moab that there was food. So some have said she's only returning because she'd heard there was food again at home. So kind of you know, putting Naomi's motives there as, as kind of shallow and superficial, but we have no indication that there wasn't food in Moab, okay? Quite the opposite. That's, they, they had gone there originally for that reason, right? So that doesn't, I don't know, that doesn't seem to line up. So, so what that means is we can read Naomi's statements here, okay? Call me Mara, not Naomi. What does that mean? Mara means bitter. Naomi means pleasant or sweet, okay? She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. Things have gone bad, Okay? But that we can read these statements uh, and I think and draw from them a helpful principle if, if we're seeing it as the statements of somebody who, imperfect of course, but was a wise, godly woman. Here's the principle I want us to draw out. I want us to be able to see here. It is not ungodly to be honest about how you are feeling in the midst of trials and difficulties. It is not ungodly to be honest about how you're feeling in the midst of trial and difficulties. The whole town was like, oh, hey, it's Naomi. She said, don't call me that. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Things have gone really bad, and it seems the Lord's hand is against me. So that's true. It's not ungodly to be honest. However, there is a pattern throughout the Psalms that helps us to be honest without just grumbling, complaining, or dishonoring God. And I want us to see that balance. Um, there's a pattern in Psalms. For the sake of time, I'm, I'm just going to read you one. This is Psalm 6. It's short. Lord, do not. This is a Psalm of David. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am frail. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are horrified, and my soul is greatly horrified. But you, Lord, how long? Return, Lord. Rescue my soul. Save me because of your mercy, for there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will praise you? I'm weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with tears. That's honest. 
It's hyperbole, but it's really getting to the point of, I'm sad because I create a swimming pool in my bedroom every night with my tears, okay? That's what he's saying. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has grown old because of all my enemies. Leave me, all you who practice injustice, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my pleading. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be put to shame and greatly horrified. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be put to shame. Here's the pattern I want to show you, and you see it throughout the Psalms. David is very honest about the struggle here, but he's also steadfast when it comes to hoping in the goodness, faithfulness, and character of God. You hear both in the Psalm, and that's what's important because you can't get to the point where you're just grumbling and just complaining, and that can be dishonoring to God. It's, it's totally right and good to be honest about how you're feeling with the Lord and with others around you. But we also have to keep in there this, the reality of God's goodness and faithfulness in the situation to keep that balance in place. And, and that second part that I'm talking about, keeping in view God's faithfulness, we don't see that from Naomi in these verses. You know, Maybe she said more than was recorded here, or, or maybe this was a pattern that she had yet to develop in her own life at this point. I don't know. But even if the latter is true and, and Naomi was just, and she was grumbling and complaining, she was sad. I, I think we can cut Naomi some slack here that maybe just perhaps we shouldn't be so quick to grant ourselves. And you might say, why? Because I would say Naomi's position is similar to ours in one way, but it's very different in another. And to conceptualize that, if you can imagine life as a hallway, and there's a series of doors, and the progression of your life is moving through those doors, and sometimes doors are open, you just walk right through them, sometimes you hit a door and it's locked. And all the doors that you open behind, they always stay open. The hallway, it continues on a long time, and it goes even beyond the history of your own life to the history of of your people, the history of, of Jesus and all. We can, we can walk back in the hall and, and throughout that hall, there's, there's pictures on the walls to remind us of the history before. And if life, if that's, if you conceptualize life that way, sometimes when you hit those locked doors, those difficult times, and, and you're trying to look for what's coming or trying to make sense of the thing and you get down and you're looking through the keyhole, trying to see into that next section, you, you got to have a very limited view. And that's oftentimes what it's like trying to make sense of life in a broken world, looking through a keyhole. But what I'm trying to say to you is, friends, that even if we can't through the keyhole see how God is being faithful in the midst of this part of our life or how God is being faithful in the midst of this trial and difficulty, what we always have is the option to turn around and look back. We always have the option to turn around and remember how God has been faithful in our own life. And if you're struggling for examples with that, you can reach all the way back to how God was faithful to send Christ to live a perfect life, to die in your place for your sins and rise from the grave. How God was faithful to make covenants with his people and kept every one, that every promise he's ever made, he's always held to. You can stroll that hallway and look at those pictures again. And even if you're overcome with grief or worry, concern, sadness because of the trial and the weight of what you're dealing with right now, don't rely on only what you can see through the keyhole. Rely on all the rich beauty of the history we have with Christ. 
Naomi had the history of God's faithfulness up to then. Most notably, perhaps, like the exodus in the wilderness, the conquest of Canaan. She had examples of God's faithfulness to her people, but, but she didn't have the clearest and most precious example to look on. And that's why I'm saying we can maybe cut Naomi a little more slack in this area of having this pattern of honesty, but also a steadfast hope in God. Maybe we can cut her more slack than we cut ourselves because she, she had some things she could look back at, but she didn't have the clearest example yet. The clearest example being the fulfillment of God's redemptive promise in Christ. We can always look to Christ and be filled again with hope and be filled again with joy, be filled again with confidence and trust in the goodness of God and his might and power and ability to keep his promises. We have, we have, every, we have, we have an, an incalculably higher set of reasons, more, more reasons to be able to hold that balance of honesty about how we feel but also hope and faith in God than, than Naomi did because we stand on this side of Christ and his gospel in history. And, and I want to gently encourage us today that the ploy of the enemy that seems to have been working here in Naomi's life, it should be much less effective on us today simply because we can look back from our little keyholes and we can see Jesus you might be asking, well, what is this common ploy of the enemy? And here it is, and I'm, I'm about done. I know I went long. This common ploy is that Satan always wants you to define yourself by your scars. But Christ wants you to define yourself by his. And what does that mean? Well, we see what it means on, on the negative side with Naomi. Don't call me, don't even call me by my name because it means pleasant and sweet. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Clearly, she was starting to see herself and her identity through her scars. That was who she was becoming. And that's what Satan wants you to do because it leads you right to that place of self-focus and self-pity. And it reduces you down to this place where you feel like you've got nothing left. It's not that you don't want to serve others. It's that you literally feel like you're not worthy to or you've got nothing to give because you're so broken and who you are is this brokenness. Who you are is these scars. But Jesus doesn't want you to live like that. He wants you to define yourself by his scars because his scars show us you're not helpless. You're not beat down to the point where you have nothing to offer. That you're valuable, that you're a son or daughter of God and that you're empowered by the spirit of God to rise up and to walk in all that God has for you. That there's a purpose for you far beyond what Satan would try to box you into and hold you down over. Please, friends, don't let yourself be defined by your scars. Define yourself by Christ and all that his scars mean for us, all that they point us to, all the hope that they provide. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for uh, this declaration of covenant loyalty between Ruth and Naomi. Thank you. Thank you uh, not only for the, the, just the beauty of it within its own context, what it means for the overall story of redemption. And Lord, we're looking forward to unpacking that more and more in the coming weeks. But thank you for what it means for us right now today. Thank you for 
the full frontal assault it brings to a selfish, self-focused perspective. Thank you that it doesn't allow us to live comfortably. Thank you that it agitates us if, if we're edging over into believing the lie that the most important thing is focusing on loving ourselves and then we can love others. Lord, we, we don't need help with self-focus. We know that that sin is constantly trying to turn us inward. Sin is constantly trying to turn us towards selfishness. But Lord, we see the beauty of truly caring for one another and we see today in your scriptures the beauty of covenant commitment and what that means for how we do community and relationships. And so I'm just asking right now, Lord, as, as we look at that, we look at the call of covenant community, as we look at the, at the call of covenant relationships, Lord, we are, we are quickly aware that we cannot do this on our own, that this is going to take supernatural intervention, that we're going to need your help, your strength. And so we ask for that now because, God, we also do see the beauty of it, and we see what it means for our witness in the world. And we want you to be glorified as we love each other in this way. Please help us, Master. And may you be lifted high as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www dot mylovecitychurch dot org